Oh, thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, Rich. Thank you, Julie and Karen, for playing. And good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be with you and a privilege to be able to open God's Word with you. I think uh, the last time I had the privilege of standing up here, we looked at a passage in 1 Peter. Today we're going to look at one in 2 Peter. So I'm going to give Peter full coverage here. Jack's going to be talking about Peter for a couple of weeks, so hopefully uh, these sessions are helping to lead into that. But 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at the first nine verses. I'm reading from the ESV this morning. Simeon, you may have Simon, Peter, a servant or bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Let's ask God's blessing on our time together one more time. Father, again, we thank you for this day and for all that you do for us. We thank you for your love and for the gift of eternal life that we have through your son and his death for us on the cross. We thank you now for this time that we can open your word, and we thank you for the freedom we have to study it and for the availability of it. Let us never take that for granted. As we look at your word this morning, you know who speaks, his faults and his weaknesses, and just pray that your Holy Spirit would Bring to us the word you would have us to hear this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we'll start off with some introductory remarks. I think Dave Reed calls this background information, so I'll change that around a little bit, and we'll call it uh, introductory remarks. Uh, Second Peter was written a few years after he had written his first epistle. So that would put it shortly before his martyrdom in AD 67. If you were to look down a little bit further, you would see in verse 14 that he's anticipating his home going, his death there in that verse. And Rome was likely the, the place of writing this letter. But as he sees his life and ministry coming to a close, Peter is deeply concerned for the churches. In 1 Peter, he wrote to strengthen the saints to endure persecution. Many were suffering and dying for their faith, and Peter wanted them to endure and stand firm. And we talked about that uh, last month or a couple months ago, whenever exactly that was. But in Second Peter, he writes to steal them to withstand what he sees as a growing insidious thre- uh, threat from false teachers who might seduce them into errors destructive to their faith. And these false teachers were from both outside the church and within the church itself, as the opening verses of chapter 2 make clear. They profess to be Christians, but their lives belied this claim. 
Their lives were marked by sensuality and greed. They promised their followers freedom, but they themselves were slaves of corruption, as Peter puts it in chapter 2 and verse 19. They scoffed at the idea of Christ's coming in judgment, the opening verses of chapter 3. The key word in Second Peter is knowledge. He begins by writing, May the grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And we'll see that in verse 2, and we'll come back to that in just a bit. He ends by writing, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I think that's a verse that's familiar to us. And he ends his, his letter with that verse in chapter 3 and verse 18. Now, throughout the letter, two Greek nouns and two verbs for knowledge or know occur 11 times. So we could sum up the theme of Second Peter by saying, growing Christians will be knowing Christians. Growing Christians will be knowing Christians. We will be growing to know sound doctrine, but also we will be growing to know God as he has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. The purpose of the letter is to call Christians to spiritual growth so that they can uh, combat apostasy and heresy as they look forward to the Lord's return. Now, the foundation for our faith is the witness of the apostles to Jesus Christ as our God and Savior, through whom we receive the blessings of salvation. Now, let's read verses 1 and 2 again. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have attained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Peter starts out here in the way a typical New Testament letter begins, by naming himself as a sender. Now that's the reverse of the way we do it. We usually start out with recipients and put the sender at the end, but in ancient times, letters started the opposite way. You get the sender first and the recipient uh, last. And he combines his birth name, Simon or Simeon. I'll tell you, I'm going to back to Simeon here in just a moment, with Peter. The name Christ gave him upon his confession of Jesus as the Messiah as recorded in Matthew chapter 16. Now, Simeon is simply the Hebrew spelling of Simon. And the only other place that occurs is in Acts 15, 14, where James refers to uh, Peter as Simeon uh, during the uh, Council of Jerusalem as recorded in Acts 15. But notice here that Peter identifies himself with a balance of dignity and humility. As an apostle, he was divinely called and commissioned as an eyewitness to the resurrection of Christ. As a bondservant or slave, and some translations will phrase it that way, he was on an equal basis with other Christians, an obedient bondservant of Christ. Now, near the close of his life, at the apex, the high point of his apostolic authority, he was Christ's bondservant first and his apostle second. He was an apostle by divine appointment. He was a bondservant by choice. Also notice here that he uses no pompous titles or symbols of status. What we see here is a grateful acknowledgement of his obligation to serve the risen Savior. And I want us to turn back. Actually, I was going to say forward. Actually, it's back to, uh, to see again an example of humility in chapter 5, verse 1 of 1 Peter, especially uh, the first part of this. But it reads, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder 
and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as partaker in the glory uh, that is going to be revealed. That first part, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. The point I'm going to get there. Note that Peter did not say, I am his holiness, Pope Peter. You may kneel and kiss my ring. Notice that humility there. And you think, you know, there's nothing what Peter says about himself anywhere that I can find in Scripture. It elevates him to the status that some religious persuasion is elevating him to. You see this humility throughout in his discussions and acknowledgement of his, of his own self. <clears throat> but in keeping with his humble introduction, Peter addresses his readers as those who have attained a faith of equal standing with ours. It is personal faith in the gospel that is necessary for salvation. Now, the word for received or obtained is from an unusual verb that means to receive by lot or by divine will. It's the same word that we see in Luke 1 and verse 9 when Zacharias was determined by lot to go into the temple to offer incense. And there he met up with the angel Gabriel and was told that he was going to have a son. And I think we're familiar with that story. In fact, we covered it. In fact, I think I had that particular section. We were going through the, uh, through the uh, uh, Gospel of Luke. I may not have. That's too far back for me uh, to remember. But yeah, chosen by Lot. But the, God's hand was behind that. So that's really what the sense of this, of this verb is here. And so this implies, I think, in our context, God's sovereign choice rather than anything Peter's readers might have done to deserve such a gift. Now, the word translated of equal standing, now there's different ways this is rendered here, of the same kind, like precious, as precious as, and it's going to vary by, um, by the version that you're looking at, is used only here in the New Testament. I won't, I won't uh, burden you with what that is called, because I did that the last time. There's an expression for that. But it comes from the words for equal and value or honor. Peter wants to assure his readers that they do not have a second-class Christianity. The faith given them by God was of equal honor or privilege with that of the faith, excuse me, of the apostles. He's kind of saying, look, we're together in all this. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 3 and verse 6. Fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, Peter does not identify his readers geographically. Although in three, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, he mentions that this is his second letter to them. Now, if we assume that the first letter was 1 Peter, and I do, then the recipients were mostly Gentile churches scattered around the various provinces of modern Turkey. Now, those places are identified specifically in 1 Peter 1 and verse 1. So if you want to go back there at some point and see what those specific areas are, you can do that. Now, here in verse 1, Peter refers to Jesus as our God and Savior. And I want to read this again because it's very important. To those who obtain a, light, a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, it's easy to go by this very quickly. But this is one of the strongest statements of the absolute deity of the Lord Jesus in the New Testament. Now, I won't bore you with the details. It wouldn't bore everybody. It would probably bore most of you with the details here. 
But it also matches the structure of Titus um, 2.13. I think you're probably familiar with this, but I'm going to go back and read it to you. And if you want to turn, like our brother Mike said earlier today, if you want to turn, feel free. If you don't, that's okay too. And I always give the options. When I taught, I always gave options. Not always, but most of the time I gave options. Even on tests, I'd be like, answer one of the following. Maybe I can do two, but you have to do one of them. At least there's an option there. But Titus 2 and verse um, um, 13 waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the exact same structure there that we have here in verse 1 of Second Peter. And um, it, it's, it's interesting. It's easy for me to say it's saying that God and Savior refer to the same person. But all the versions don't read this way. Now, it's, you can say, well, Mike, you, you're saying that, but how do we know that? It's not referring to two different people here. It's referring to one. It's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is both God and Savior. Well, you can take my word for it, but here's the, I'm gonna, now I'm going to stop here for just a minute and explain this. Now, a lot of people who know me know that I'm a, I'm a language nerd, if I can use that term. And more specifically, I'm a grammar nerd. Now, I know that not everybody is, so feel free to hit the off switch if you want to, or just not listen to what I have to say. But this is, this is important because there's a basis for this, for us knowing or being able to say that these both titles apply to one person, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1798, a gentleman by the name, now some people are going to recognize this when I say it, by the name of Granville Sharp came up with something that became a rule in grammar, New Testament grammar, that bears his name. And what it says here, and that leads to this idea that both of these titles here, God and Savior, refer to one person, and that is the Lord Jesus. Now, you can ask me for the details. I'd be happy to explain the mechanics of that, but you could also ask Peter, who would be much better at it than I would, or any members of the, the Greek study group here. By the way, we're thinking about starting our fifth year of working together, and that's been a great encouragement uh, to me. But some versions miss this, and I want to read how, and I'm, I grew up on the King James, and I love the King James, and I would never prepare a message without reading the King James. But hear how the King James reads here. Through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. But you can hear the distinction. There's talking about two different people, God, uh, Jesus and God. But what we just read is God and Savior applies to the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a very strong statement about the deity of Jesus Christ. But in fairness to the translator of the King James Version, this particular rule was not formulated for almost 200 years after the King James Version uh, was published. So I have to give the translator of the KJV a pass on this one. But the bottom line here is that this is one of a handful of places where the New Testament explicitly calls Jesus God. Also in, in, this, in this book, Peter uses Savior to describe Jesus five times in this short letter. Uh, it means that Jesus rescues us from God's wrath and judgment on our sins. We cannot save ourselves. That's a simple fact. Our good works can never, never save us. Only our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, can save us when we trust in his sacrificial death and resurrection. Well, grace and peace here in verse 2 were the characteristic Greek and Hebrew greetings. And note that grace and peace come through or in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Uh, the word that Peter uses here is an intensified form of the usual word for knowledge, and it has a sense of full or true knowledge. 
Now, you may wonder here if Peter identified Jesus as God, as you did in verse 1, and the answer to that is no, because the construction here is different. Both are in view here, God the Father and Jesus Christ as distinct persons are in view. Grace and peace are multiplied through knowing God the Father and Jesus Christ. Well, in our context, the word knowledge in verse 2 refers not to mere intellectual awareness, or theoretical knowledge, but what I like to call heart knowledge. Peter and his followers do not merely know about God and Jesus. They share an intimate relationship with their God. That is, they literally know God through Jesus Christ. The point is this. When intimate heart knowledge of God through Christ increases, our grace and peace increase, and we become more like Christ. We call that process sanctification. That's one of three times I'm going to mention that here uh, this morning. Well, Peter continues this thought in verse 3, emphasizing that God's divine power, not our own effort at self-reformation, gives us everything for life and godliness. Let's read verse 3 again. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him, who called us to his own glory and excellence. Can I just pause for a minute and ask someone to get me a glass of water? I'd really appreciate it because I'm I'm fighting off some dry mouth here. It's one of the uh, effects of uh, medicine I'm on. Uh, Unfortunately, all medicines have uh, side effects, and this is one of them. Uh, A number of you can identify with that, I think, that are out there. So I'm battling some dry mouth here, and it's making it a little bit hard to speak. But we'll we'll keep on trucking, as they say here, uh, as we do this. Uh, but God's divine power, not our own efforts, his self-reformation, gives us everything for life and godliness. Now, we're, talking about, we're not talking about some techniques or principles that you can find in Reader's Digest. Is Reader's Digest still around? It's been a long time since I've read that. <laughs> but that's not what we're talking about, or, or some popular self-help book. Peter is talking about something that requires divine power. God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. Through the indwelling Holy Spirit, all believers are fully equipped with the power of God when they first believe. We've got that from the very beginning. I'm going to read Ephesians 3.16. And again, if you'd like to, you can turn there. Um, Ephesians 3.16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power. Oh, sorry about that. Through, uh, through his spirit in your inner being. That's a tremendous thought, isn't it, when you stop to think about that? Um, this is an interesting anecdote that I picked up somewhere in my, in my research along the way. Uh, in 1877, Crowfoot, the chief of the Blackfoot Indian Confederacy in southern Alberta, Canada, gave the Canadian Pacific Railway permission to lay track across the Blackfoot land from Medicine Hat to Calgary. I've always liked that name, Medicine Hat. You know, I've looked it up on the map and found out where it was, but I'm always struck by that particular name. In return, the railroad gave Crowfoot a lifetime pass to ride on the railway. Crowfoot uh, took that pass, put it in a leather case, and proudly wore it around his neck until he passed away in 1890. But there's absolutely no evidence that he ever used to travel anywhere on the Canadian trains. Now, we may chuckle at the chiefs neglecting to use his pass, but many Christians are just like him in not availing themselves of the unlimited promises of God. Now, we may quote them and even put them on a wall in a plaque, but practically, we never use them 
in their daily lives. Peter wants us to know that God has granted to us everything, not some things or many things, we need for life and godliness through knowing Christ and trusting in his all-sufficient promises. We don't need anything in addition to what God has provided for us in Christ. For centuries, the Bible has been adequate to equip the saints to go through unspeakable tragedy, to face persecution, and even martyrdom. Our problem today is not that the Bible is incapable of dealing with our problems, but rather that we do not know the vast resources that God has put there for us. John MacArthur wrote this, To seek something more than what we have been given in Christ is like frantically knocking on a door, seeking what is inside, not realizing you hold the key in your pocket. The magnificent truth, this magnificent truth should not be an excuse for passivity, however, but rather a motivation for participation. While God provides everything necessary for us, we have to act. We still have to be involved in the process. The, the fact that we must use the power God has given us in no way negates the fact that God is completely responsible for the cause and effects. And Paul illustrates this point in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 and 7. I would like you to turn to this one. You still have the option not to, but I would like you to. Uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3. Okay, here's Paul speaking. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. But did you catch what he's saying there? Paul and Apollos were active. They were not passive. They were doing real work. And had they not participated in the work of the ministry, growth would not have occurred. Yet at the same time, Paul acknowledged that through the process, God himself caused the growth. With our initial salvation, God has equipped us by the indwelling spirit with an introductory packet that includes everything we need. You know, you've you've all worked somewhere, right? I think everybody has anyway. I remember going to a a new job. I had a few over the years. Actually, I was only a few. I was either in school or in the military, and I only had one other job other than cutting grass in the summers at Jewish Hospital, the old Jewish Hospital down on Burnett Avenue. Uh, but um, I remember going to work the first day. They give you this introductory packet, and then along the way they give you other stuff. We get it all up front. We've got it there, and that's what we need from the, uh, from the very, very beginning. We have access to resources, which when utilized will result in usefulness and fruitfulness, both horizontally in our relationship with others and vertically in our relationship with God. Now, when you do this, I think I'm doing the, the motions to a camp song, Phil. Does that kind of look like that there? That's the impression I get when I'm, when, I'm, uh, when I'm doing that. But having the right equipment is no guarantee that we'll benefit from it. And not only uh, we have to use it, but we have to use it properly. And this leads directly in the thoughts Peter develops in verses 4 through 9. And we'll, read them in, we'll read them individually here as we, as we go through rather than all of them uh, together. But God has given us a conversion Precious and magnificent promises. Let's read verse uh, 4 again. By which he has granted unto us his prom- as precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire or lust. These promises became ours when we were spiritually united with Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. And becoming partakers of Christ, we inherit all the promises that go along with our union with him. 
2 Corinthians 1.20 says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. What are some of these promises? You could probably write down a whole bunch of them right now. If we took, if this is a Sunday school class, I would probably have you do that. Take out a piece of paper, write down all the promises of God that you can think of. And I'm going to give you a partial list. I'll probably go down fairly quickly. Um, this is one of the things that I learned over the years uh, in teaching in many different settings, but especially when I was teaching history for many years um, at UC. And as you try to find the right cadence and the right pace to go at, and that's not easy to do. You're either talking too fast for some or too slow for others. You try to find that, that median there. Sometimes I'm successful, sometimes I'm not. And I don't mind people pointing it out to me because you try to learn. And sometimes I go back. I used to, when I first started teaching, I used to listen. I used to record myself and listen to see you know, how, how the pace was. I may have shared this story before. If I did, uh, forgive me. But um, one year when I was teaching, and I, I, I didn't have much money any of those years. I was a grad student, and any, any class I could get thrown my way, I grabbed it immediately. And I was hurting for money one year, and out of the blue I get a call in mid-October from Ron Temple, who was the uh, uh, dean of the University College. I don't think it exists anymore. It was on-campus open enrollment um, um, community college at, at UC. He said, Mike, I've got a problem. And I had worked for him a couple years before as a teaching assistant. He said, I, I have an instructor that has to go on emergency leave, and he has to go right now for medical reasons. I said, can you teach a couple classes, of uh, sections of Western Civ? It was not the most popular class to teach. It's so wide open. It was one of the least favorite classes to take as well. I said, sure. You know, I need the money badly. So I said, sure. I said, sure. When do I start? He said, tomorrow. I said, okay. I said, where are they in the class? He said, somewhere around the fall of the Roman Empire. So I said, that gives me at least a place where I know where I'm going. And so so I, got the, I got the room number where I was. There were two classes. I got the room numbers, and I got over there, and went, okay, I get started. I walk in, and I'm getting ready to start. A young man in the front row raises his hand. He said, Mr. Merritt, he said, the guy before you went at, 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 70, at 78 RPMs. Could you throw it, throw it down to 45 or maybe 33? Now, those of you who don't remember vinyl, this will not mean anything to you. you may, you're of the CD age, but if you remember vinyl, you know, 75 is pretty quick. 45, 70, uh, 78, four, those bigger records. 45 are the smallest, and 33 are LPs that even went slower. So I said, well, I think I can do that. But don't ask me to go down to 16 and two-thirds, because if I do that, I will bore myself and put myself to sleep. But I thought that was pretty cute. And I, that I, you, you try to find that pace. If I'm going too fast, I, I apologize uh, in advance. And if I'm going too slow, I, I do the same. But what are some of those promises? Uh, I'll give you a list of, 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 uh, of, of eight. Um, forgiveness of all our sins. That, that is certainly one of those. Past, present, and future. Spiritual adoption by God the Father, spiritual strength through the indwelling Holy Spirit, comfort in suffering and hardship, provision of all our needs. Not everything we want, but provision of all our needs. Hope of heaven when we die, bodily resurrection when he returns, and reigning with him in heaven. And again, that's just a partial list. We, we could add to that, and, and you could add to it right now as well. But it gives us some examples to help us understand how Peter can say there in the verse that by them we can do two things. We can become partakers of the divine nature, and we can escape the corruption of the world, as he puts it there 
in verse 4. And there's a link between the two in that as we put away uh, the lust, the sinful desire that causes corruption, we increasingly partake of the divine nature as we believe and act on these promises that God has given us in his world, in his word. We participate in the new life that God has given us, and we escape the corruption that is in the world through lust and sinful desire. We become, quite literally, more and more like Christ in both our inner beings and our outward actions. What has been declared once for all, by grace through faith, our righteousness before God becomes progressively manifest in our daily lives. The former is called justification. We talked about that a lot in our study in, in, in Galatians and also in our study in Romans. When we are declared righteous by God, not of ourselves, but solely because of the work of Jesus Christ. The latter is called sanctification, when we are made increasingly more righteous. Well, Peter tells us how this righteousness becomes a part of our lives in verse 5. So let's read that again. First of all, we are to make every effort or to apply all diligence. And that word here implies eagerness and determination. It means to apply ourselves as much as possible. And Peter tells his readers to apply a number of things to their faith. And notice that faith, really, is already present, is the foundation of the Christian life. And it means relying on what Peter has described as the provision and promises for spiritual growth. It means abandoning ourselves to God, to his will, his strength, and his wisdom. Upon this foundation of faith, focused on Christ, established by the Holy Spirit, we are to build. Now, Peter then lists seven qualities we should add to this foundation of faith. I'm going to read through these here in just a moment. And notice they sound similar, at least some of them sound similar, to the virtues that comprise the fruit of the Spirit. So let's go ahead and read those now. Um, To supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Now I'm going to give like a little bullet summary of each one. And again, um, not taking too long on them because we'd be here a long time for that. Um, I could go on all afternoon, but I think you'd probably get tired before that happened. And also, I like to be aware of the folks up in the nursery. Sometimes we forget about that, and we go on maybe 12.30. I mean, it's 1 o'clock now. 12.30 is a stop time. For years, it used to be 12 o'clock. Now it used to go into 12.30, but of course, we don't get up here until 12, almost 12, or quarter to 12. But anyway, try to be aware of those things. But here's some little bullet points on these. A virtue is really synonymous with moral excellence, and I think it implies moral fortitude and courage. You know, the ability to do what's right and to stand alone if necessary. Uh, Knowledge here, I think, refers to practical knowledge. Knowledge learned by keen observation and experience. Self-control, maintaining a balanced life is how I like to think of that, even when the world encourages indulgence. Steadfastness or um, or perseverance you might have in your version, I mean, keeping on the narrow path even when everything around us tries to push us off that path. Godliness means authentic piety, and that has two sides, I believe. The right perspective and attitude towards God would be one side of it, and a right view towards others, a genuine servant's heart, giving others their proper honor and respect. 
Brotherly love or affection? Philadelphia. That's the word there, and the city of brotherly love. So it fits here right away. It refers to treating others as they were members of our own family. And that was alluded to earlier uh, this morning. Treating others as they would, we would like to be treated ourselves. Love. And the whole seven-step ladder, as we look through here, leads to love. The word here, I think, is one that we all know, whether we ever looked at a Greek book or not, and that's agape. And you hear that all the time. There are churches named agape um, as well. But seeking the highest good for others. This is the kind of love demonstrated by God in sending Jesus Christ into this world to die for sinners. Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Like Peter does here, Paul marks this kind of love as the highest Christian virtue. And reminded here of of um, 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 13. That's quite a list, is it not? But if Peter had not already reminded us in verse 3 that God gives the power, these seven tiers might seem as insurmountable as Mount Everest. And I was thinking about that when we uh, uh, were the Greek study group. I talk about them some because I really appreciate these folks. Uh, They've been an encouragement uh, encouragement to me over the last four years. We uh, began a study of participles. Not any of those people talk about participles. We use them all the time, but we never stop to think about them. I can tell you what a participle is. We were getting ready to start a study of those. And I came in, I drew a little picture on the, on the whiteboard there. I said, this is Mount Everest. This is you at standing at the bottom of it. This is you trying to go up Mount Everest. This is you trying to master the participial system in Greek. It's going to be very difficult. But once you do, it's going, to, it's going to really help you down the road. And I still remember that. We're going to climb Mount Everest. But maybe what we're try, if we're trying to do this, it may seem like that to us. But we've already gotten these things. We've already got the power from God to do this. So it may seem insurmountable, but we can indeed do it. Accompanied by God's promises and presence through the Spirit and applying diligence, we can have the firm help hope that God will work in us and with us as we grow to be more like Christ. Peter promises that we will be useful and fruitful in our Christian lives if these things are present in our lives and increasing through diligence in verse 6, 8 there that he says. Okay, Peter acknowledges that not everyone will maintain the diligence that leads to maturity. So let's read uh, verse 9 again. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed, from his former sins. And I, I really like the way the ESV puts it here, so nearsighted that he is blind. You're not obviously not literally blind. Now, the translations vary here. It's nearsighted and blind, nearsighted or blind. But I like this, so nearsighted is blind. But I think the sense here is that being nearsighted regarding these virtues is as good <clears throat> as being blind. Such believers fail both to look back on their conversion when God purified them from their sins, and they cannot look far enough ahead either. They cannot look forward to the seeing the coming of Christ and his reward for those who are faithful. So those who focus on the present life and live for themselves will lack these qualities and squander the power God has given them. Now, thinking of these main points here, that you know God has granted to us everything, not some things or many things that we need for life and godliness through knowing Christ and trusting in these all-sufficient promises. You know, that, that should greatly encourage us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of those marvelous promises is the sure hope of heaven when we die. Now, I think I, it's been a long time since I, I looked this up, but it wasn't all that long ago that I saw a study that said 
Still a majority of Americans believe in God. They may have gone down some, but still a little bit over 50% did. And again, I can't remember when I saw that. And that same little bit of a majority say they, would like, they believe in heaven as well. But if he asks them, how do you get to heaven? You're going to get a lot of different answers. But one of the ones that I, <clears throat> I remember hearing is something like this. Nobody's perfect, so just do your best. And when you die, if your good works outweigh your bad deeds, surely God isn't going to turn you away. Well, that sounds so reasonable, doesn't it? But it's not what the Bible says. Uh, as Paul makes clear in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. If you do not know Christ as Savior and you're sitting here today thinking that somehow you can earn your salvation and your entrance into heaven by your good works, I urge you to think again. To be justified or declared righteous before God, you must place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're trying to obtain favor with God by your works, that's not good enough for salvation. In order to go to heaven, we must believe in Christ by faith. Some say that there are many roads or ways to heaven. But the Bible says this in John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I would like to close this morning by reading the uh, words from the first, um, well, from the first verse of a song recorded by Rick Bollock, among others. And again, I talked about YouTube the last time I was up here, and I told you I couldn't believe I was talking about that because uh, years ago I couldn't imagine myself being on, looking at YouTube. There are some nice things on there that you can listen to. There's a lot of things that aren't so nice. But you can find this song. It's called Calvary Made the Difference. It's not Calvary Made All the Difference, but Calvary Made the Difference. And Rick Bollock, among others, have recorded this. I'd like to read this first verse to you because it encapsulates here what I was saying at the end. I know that many men today are searching, trying to find a way to happiness and peace of mind. But like a blind man groping in the darkness... They keep hoping some elusive dream they'll find. And you tell them about Jesus, but so few of them believe us. They just turn and walk away. They say it matters not what God you fear. As long as you have been sincere, we'll all reach heaven someday. But I say Calvary made the difference. Jesus proved himself to me upon the cross. And he left an empty tomb to remind us he has risen. And he's Jesus Christ the only Son of God. Calvary made the difference indeed. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to study it together. And we thank you for the gift of eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice of his own life for us on the cross. But, Father, those who don't know him do not have an assurance of heaven. So I just pray that there are some here today who don't know him as Savior, Father. They would come to know him so they could have uh, the assurance of this great promise uh, of eternal life. So, Father, we thank you for this time. We just pray that as we go from this place, you'd go with us until we meet again. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.